Welcome to episode 1189 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented as always by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. How'd you like your free agent contract picks? Uh, not so much, actually. Things started out so well, but I guess it wasn't that they started out so well. It was just that none of your picks had actually been resolved yet. And so things were looking okay for me. On the whole, my picks were fine. I did all right. I generally picked in the right direction, but you picked much better <laughs> in the right direction. So Let's the numbers are, are final now. Yeah, so we will talk about some of the signings that finalized this draft here. We'll talk about Jake Arrieta and Lance Lynn and, well, not Jonathan Lucroy, although he was also involved in this draft. But we will talk about those guys and also Neil Walker shortly before we then get to a Bay Area edition of our team preview series. We're going to talk to two excellent guests, Grant Brisby on the Giants and Susan Slusser of the A's. But yes, the offseason contracts draft again for listeners who weren't with us last November. We just chose over-unders on MLB trade rumors, predicted free agent contracts, and if you chose in the right direction, you got credit for the amount that the contract was in that direction, either over or under. So my cumulative showing with my 10 picks, $51 million. Not bad. I, I picked $51 million in the right direction. My big hits were Logan Morrison. I took the under on him. That worked out well for me. It sounds almost ghoulish to gloat about players not getting any money this winter, but <laughs> for this one purpose, we can do it. We we had stakes here. So you completely blew me away. This is just a historic showing, and you ended up with a grand total of $184 million. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest contract of the winter right there. Oh, my goodness. I guess the secret was choosing the under. <laughs> that was That's, that was that the was one. The, you took the under on everyone except Eric Hosmer and Anthony Swarzak, and you didn't even get hurt on either of those because you ended up getting some value on the over on Hosmer, and Swarzak was exactly what he was predicted to get. But you went under on everyone else, whereas I went over on, I think, most of my picks, and this was a bad offseason to take the over on free agent contract predictions. I mean, so we're, let's see, Mike Misakis was predicted at 85 million yes. is that right so i <laughs> so mean that's picked up a cool <laughs> 78.5 right there <laughs> oh that's and just disgusting yeah you had the under on lance lynn we'll talk about it in a moment but you picked up another 44 million there you got another 36 on you darvish another 12 on hosmer one of your rare over picks so you were Basically just right on just about everyone. I don't know if you picked anyone wrong. It was just a, a pretty flawless showing by you. So I tipped my cap. I don't know. <laughs> I, I assume you didn't predict or anticipate exactly what would happen this winter. If you did, you were holding out on the rest of us. But for whatever reason, you proved very prescient here. I have a lot of connections in the game, and I put a lot of money into making sure front <laughs> offices allowed me to win this. So I, uh, I I told them who to stay away from, who to bid on. It is a weird, there's very little skill. I forgot that we even made 10 picks each in the first place. I had no recollection of choosing Anthony Swarzak. I had no recollection even of Anthony Swarzak. It's, all I know is that Roto World says he's had an injured calf. But yeah, uh, that's, that's a, a pretty good obliteration. And uh, I don't know what it 
reflects, except I guess this gets into the conversation that we've had a million times of what's wrong. And I'm n- I think we're both of a similar mind, which is not surprising. We tend to be. There is a lot of doom and gloom out there about the death of free agency and the death of the, the will to compete on, from the team standpoint. But I really don't think that that's what we're seeing. What we're seeing is just the, the free agent market being the most rational it's ever been. And the actual problem is not that free agency is cold and unfeeling and objective now more than ever, but it's that, of course, the players don't get enough money before it because mm-hmm. all the reasons we've gone over, we don't need to talk about this again, do we? Do we? I don't know. Now that it's well, almost all done, Alex Cobb I'm is sure we will. <laughs> yeah, well, we will, I'm sure, in the years to come as the players try to figure out how to fix that system, which they are locked into now for the next few years, and then they have to try to figure out how they can make the owners give them back some value on those early years because this is the way free agency has always worked and to this point it has worked out okay for the players and it seems like it's not going to continue to so they're going to have to try to overhaul the whole system which means that they'll have to either take a hardline stance threaten to strike or come up with some other concessions but that will be a big storyline of the next two to three years of baseball so we don't necessarily have to dwell on it now yeah i think the game the health of the game is there I, I know we've talked about I mean, there's there's really not even that many teams who are actively tanking right now. And, you know, you look at some teams who aren't even projected to be good and they've made some free agent moves. Now, granted, if you look at like the Royals with Duda and Moustakis and Jay, they signed them for very little money because they waited until March. So I don't know what you really make of that, but we'll have several other occasions to talk about this. So we can just leave mm-hmm. it alone for now. And the only thing we have left to wait for, I guess, is God only knows what Greg Holland is going to sign for. That was a mistake. <laughs> and Alex Cobb, I expect to sign for the Lance Lynn contract any day now. Mm-hmm. Well, we maybe have the least to say about the Lance Lynn contract. So should we start there? The Twins got Lance Lynn one-year deal, $12 million, with another couple million in incentives, potentially. So... What do we have to say about Lance Lynn? Obviously, he wanted much more, but the market was not there, and he is not Jake Arrieta, so he had to settle for this. And Lynn is a guy who is coming off a season whose, you know, his numbers were. He kind of had the the split sort of season going on where the ERA was respectable and everything else wasn't really. But in the past, he's been an innings eater. He missed all of 2016. He had Tommy John surgery. He came back and was decent, but was not quite as good as he'd been before. And here he is, and the Twins needed rotation help, and they ended up getting one of these late winter bargains, which should help them. Yeah, I mean, it's... The thing that confuses me, look, the Twins can use Lansing, whatever. He's a number four starter and for a rotation that has a bunch of threes and fives or something. So he'll he'll pitch, he'll do what he's supposed to do, and the Twins will be fine with it. But I, who, Lance Lane is not a Boris guy. He is, let's see, his agent is Excel Sports Management. So I don't know where the rumors were coming from. Lance Lane wanted Jordan Zimmerman money. Lance Lane was thinking nine figures. In what world... <laughs> <laughs> Would Lance Lynn get nine figures? And I know that you look at something like, I guess, the the Mike Moustakis deal, maybe Neil Walker. You look at it and think, well, that's that's just a pity. They, the players deserve a little more than that, and they do. Mm-hmm. But Lance Lynn deserves what he got because he's he, – I know that he's 
been an effective innings eater in the past, but he missed an entire season because of significant mm-hmm. surgery on his arm. He's 30 years right. old, and it's coming off a year where he just wasn't good. He had a low ERA, yeah. but teams don't care about that anymore, and neither should agents. So I don't know. I don't know what the agents thought might be realistic. I don't know what rumors are accurate. I have no connections to XL. I don't. I I haven't. I'm not, I'm going to live with it. I haven't had a lot of conversations about Lance Lynn this winter, and I'm <laughs> I'm not about to have a whole bunch over the summer. But if if those rumors were tied in any way to what the agency thought was reality, that's just a colossal mistake because that was never ever going to happen. This is reminiscent of that Irvin Santana talk a few years ago, right, where he wanted a mm. hundred million and he signed for like eight. <laughs> well, once you miss an entire season with an injury and a fairly serious surgery, your innings eater status is revoked. I think yeah. that's that's the kind of thing where you need to do it every year, and then once you stop doing it, you are just like everyone else. You're in that same getting injured boat. So I think, I mean, in the past he's had some virtues, and I guess you could say that. Tommy John, once you've had the surgery, maybe there is a bit of a grace period where you're not likely to hurt the same part of your body again, and so maybe he can go back to being basically effective, but he just wasn't quite as effective as he'd been before, and maybe that part of that was just a kind of a fluky home run per fly ball rate. I haven't dug into whether he was leaving more pitches over the plate or anything like that, but his home run per fly ball rate was about double what it is had been in his three previous seasons so maybe there is some positive regression coming there anyway he's decent he'll make the twins better but if you had to say if he's closer to a one-year 12 million dollar pitcher or a four-year 56 million dollar pitcher (laughs) probably closer to the one and 12 i'm trying to think of a comp like a contract comp or a performance comp from say last off season before everything seemed to go south for the players in the market and i don't have a name on the tip of my tongue but i think there are probably guys who signed for comparable contracts who were comparable pitchers do you know how lance lynn pitched the lefties last year i'll tell you he faced him 384 times he had 53 walks and 58 strikeouts that's Ooh. bad i don't yes. know how many of you pay attention to strikeout and walk ratios but that's not that's not good. Lance Lynn has a pitch, and he throws it, and lefties see it really well. He had a low batting average on balls in play, whatever. We don't need to dig more into Lance Lynn than we already are. And I, I feel like before I go too harsh, Lance Lynn is fine. He belongs in a major league rotation. But I don't think that a team signs him thinking, we want this guy to start for us in the playoffs, which drives some of his value down. And even if he did still have value as an innings eater, at the end of the day, a team recognizes, oh, our innings are being eaten by Lance Lynn. I'd rather give them to somebody else, like a reliever. Relievers are good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you could imagine the Twins rotation once Santana gets back from his finger injury, maybe a couple months into the season. It looks decent. At least the top three are serviceable. So... That's kind of all they need to at least contend for a wild card because as we've covered, they have a pretty solid lineup, which if anything has gotten better. So, I mean, they're going to contend, maybe not for the division, but I think they've probably done enough this winter that you can't write them off and say that 
last year was a, a fluke and there will be huge regression coming. So that's nice if you're a Twins fan. Yeah, credit to them. I think they'll hit. I still like Byron Buxton. I think Logan Morrison was a good signing, even yep. if he's not quite as good as he was last season. And they just did so well to take advantage of this market. And as much as I feel like I've maybe been unfair to Lance Lynn, I don't think I've been unfair, but I've said a lot of negative things about Lance Lynn. They still got him for one year and they're not going to, that money's right. not going to hurt him. So the Twins... Twins played this free agent market well. Even if they didn't make a whole lot of sexy additions, they had a lot of holes to fill, and they filled pretty mm-hmm. much all of them. Yeah, and they're one of those teams in that middle area that actually did do things this winter, and maybe we'll take advantage of that. So transitioning to another contract that appears extraordinarily team-friendly, we can talk about Neil Walker, who signed for one year and a base salary of $4 million, again, with various bonuses and incentives. And we talked about Walker recently because it had been reported that he was offered a minor league contract by the Rockies, I believe. And we were talking about how it was possible that a player of Neil Walker's caliber could be sitting there and not getting a major league contract. And We don't know exactly what offers he may have received at various times. I've read at least one report that he just hadn't gotten a major league contract offer before this one he ended up signing, and he didn't even have a qualifying offer holding him back, right, the way that Moustakis did. So it was even more surprising. Granted, he's had some injuries. He's you know, a little bit of a big platoon split guy, I suppose, but he's been solid for several years. He's been an average or better player. And as we said last time we talked about him, there are a lot of teams that would be better with Neil Walker on their roster. Now the Yankees are that team that is better with Neil Walker on their roster. And so now they suddenly have a ton of infield depth, which at various points this winter looked like they didn't have a whole lot at all. And they traded Starlin Castro. It looked like they were going to be relying on rookies. Then they brought in Brandon Drury and now Neil Walker. And they have the luxury of playing veterans until the rookies force their way into the lineup. So Walker will be at least a part-time second baseman this season and really raises the Yankees' floor at least. I was confused a little bit about the Walker move, so I, I sent in a message. And uh, I'll, I'll read word for word a message I got back from a, a team person and just Tuesday morning. This is about Walker. I just don't think he's all that good, to be honest. I'm totally out on the defense at second base, and he pretty much has to sit versus lefties. We could have had him on a similar deal, but just didn't think he was much of an upgrade over what we currently have, really. So I would imagine that that perspective was not unique to this particular team. That seems to be what every team thought. And this gets into what I think is one of the most interesting aspects of this offseason that is pretty undercovered. Alex Spear wrote about it. Uh, He had a a big article last week that was talking about all the different forces that affected the market this winter, and I enjoyed it. It was good. And one of the forces that he brought up, I think he has a, a Brian Bannister quote in there that thankfully I do have copied and pasted here. So this is now Brian Bannister. Quote, what teams think they can do with players is as important as what the player has already done, said Red Sox Vice President of Pitching Analysis Brian Bannister. It's armies of very knowledgeable baseball people, analysts, and disruptive technology all combining to have a more complete approach to developing players. I think you're seeing that around the game. Long story short, what I think Bannister is talking about and what I truly believe to be accurate is that teams... They see free agents, and of course, Neil Walker has his track record of being pretty good, and I would expect that if he got to play every day this season, he'd be something like an an average player or thereabouts. And we know that average players should have a lot of value, but if teams 
see guys like Yonder Alonso or Logan Morrison getting good all of a sudden through seemingly simple adjustments, or at least adjustments they can make pretty quickly, mm-hmm. teams have reason to believe that they can get more out of the players they already have. And I think that uh, the negative perspective on that would be that teams are less willing to invest in marginal players in the free agent market. And that drives down maybe the player's share. But the optimistic spin would be that teams are decreasingly willing to give up on the players they have, which is good for those players. If you have a skill, teams are going to try really hard to get that out of you and to help you perform better, which is good. So Mm -hmm. I would imagine in a case like Neil Walker, a case like Mike Moustakis and these average-ish looking players, part of the reason that their markets were down was because teams just think that they can get more out of the young players they already have because there is just more information out there than ever. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I've been fascinated by that trend, certainly, toward player development being the separator between teams as opposed to just pure player evaluation based on past performance. And we have seen a lot of teams reinvent players and players reinvent themselves I wonder if you can take that too far. I mean, if you have that sort of success with a player, and Bannister has notably with Rich Hill among others, I wonder whether there's a tendency to think that you can just sort of spin gold out of anyone. And maybe we don't know. I mean, maybe you can. Maybe every team does somewhere in its organization have a potential star that in an earlier era might just you know not have been developed to the fullest extent of his talents but i wonder i mean there is something to be said for having the record of consistency and production that neil walker has and it is something of a risk especially if you're one of the teams that expects to contend this season to just say well we can make a Neil Walker out of someone who's never been Neil Walker. And it's not something that, at least historically, just every team has been able to conjure out of thin air. A player who is not old, he's, what, 32, and has been, again, worth at least two Fangraphs war essentially every year going back to his first full season. So that's something. There's value to that. And to decide that the value to that is one year and four million just seems like a quite a dramatic break from what we've seen in the past. So I, I just wonder whether there will be certain teams in midseason that will have some project that they believe in right now, but will have some adjustments and growing pains. And suddenly they'll be thinking, I wish we had boring old dependable to war Neil Walker on the roster right now. And teams probably figure that if they're good, they can, if they need the help midseason, they can go trade for, if not Neil Walker, someone like Neil Walker. Those players are generally available and they don't cost a whole lot in the middle of the season. And so then if you're missing out on one half season of Neil Walker, your team's probably going to be okay. But I, I do agree with you that I think it, it could go too far. And for all I know, maybe it already has gone too far. I don't know but I can at least understand why teams might be behaving this way. And again, this is mostly speculative, but teams have all of this information, just a few years of of StatCast, all the TrackMan stuff, and they have more than we have access to. They have it in the minor leagues. And not every team is like this, but there are teams that the player development is almost experimental, at least with a handful of guys. And I can understand why teams would be really excited to try to utilize it, because it seems like there is an just an untold ceiling to how much you can get out of this. Now, Mm -hmm. I suspect that within even just a few years, teams will start to figure out the probable limitations of this and Mm -hmm. that you can't just squeeze water out of a stone 
mm-hmm. if the stone has a 600 OPS in low A <laughs> yeah. or whatever, and he's right. not really rangy at shortstop. So I would, I would imagine that teams will eventually circle back to valuing the players who have proven that, hey, I'm good. I'm pretty good. I've been good for, for a while. You don't have to do anything with me. And I think that will come back into fashion somewhat. But for now, I can understand why teams are excited to experiment because I'm excited to see them experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as am I. And anyway, for the time being, the Yankees should benefit from this. They certainly get the insurance of having a dependable veteran around if either of their young prospects, whether it's Andujar or Torres, if they don't you know, hit the ground running. You have Neil Walker there and, you know, he'll be solid and the Yankees are in a position where every win matters. They're trying to compete with another really good team, Brian Bannister's team, in fact, for a division title. And Walker, I think, makes that somewhat more likely and still doesn't take them over the competitive balance limit that they have managed to avoid all winter. So good for them, I guess. Bad for Walker and another free agent falls, and that takes us to the Carlos last Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> Already covered him, I think. And uh, today, let's just talk briefly about Jake Arrieta, who signed for three years and seventy-five million with the Philadelphia Phillies, whom he had been connected to for some time. So, this is not the contract that he wanted, but is also not quite as pitiable a contract as guys like Moustakis and Walker ended up with. So as one of the world's foremost Jake Arrieta analysts, what do you make of this deal? And also it has weird opt-outs, which you also <laughs> wrote about. Yeah, I like I like the structure of this contract. Now, maybe Jake Arrieta doesn't, and, uh, and maybe Scott Boris doesn't, but Arrieta was never going to get $200 million. That's just a ridiculous anchoring point. Yeah, bring up his 2015 Cy Young all you want. It's not 2015 anymore. Last year wasn't 2015. He's played baseball since then. He's been worse. There are so many arrows pointing downward with Jake Arrieta. I can't remember a premium free agent case that made me this terrified <laughs> like of, a, of an investment. Uh, at the same time, Arrieta, of course, is still good. His pitches still behave in incredible ways, even if he doesn't quite know where they're going. So I understand why a team would want to sign him. I, I understand why a team would give him a lot of money. I think that he has bounce back potential. The Phillies have felt kind of, I wouldn't say inevitable, but they felt like by far the likeliest outcome as soon as it became clear Arietta was not going to get five or six years because the Phillies have a whole lot of money to spend and they need to worry about being efficient with it the least because of how much money they have to spend. They're not the Brewers or the Twins or or a smaller budget operation that does need to worry about the investment. So if Arietta goes tits up, then the Phillies can survive. That being said, what I like about the opt-out here is that Arietta gets an opt-out after the second season, which is not too uncommon. We've seen a lot of, a lot of players get opt-outs, but the Phillies protected themselves here because what they did, and this is the first time this has happened, is the Phillies ex- uh, put in a clause where they can void Jake Arietta's opt-out by extending his contract two more seasons after the third. Uh And so what this, I think this is still an unlikely outcome, but what it does is if, pretend that weren't there, pretend Arietta just had the opt-out after year two. If Jake Arietta bounces back and if he's great, then he opts out and the Phillies lose him after two years. They get the benefit the first two seasons, he's great, and then he's gone. But this way, with the, the Phillies clause, if Jake Arietta bounces back and he's really great, then the Phillies get to keep him. And they get to keep them for what they would presumably uh, determine to be a below market rate. 
So I'm not sure in the end that Jake Arrieta's opt-out has any real value to him at all because there's a pretty mm. narrow path to where Arietta would opt out, but the Phillies wouldn't want to extend him. Uh-huh. So it's interesting. But still, if you're Jake Arietta, you can look at this and say, I could max out at $135 million over five years. That's a lot. Uh, I can do that. I'm sure he believes in himself. And I think the most likely outcome here is that Arietta just goes three years, gets a $75 million. He declines. He doesn't bounce back to being the best pitcher in the league. And that's that. And the Phillies' fate is determined by their other players. But I like it. I like it for now. I think Arietta is fascinating because he does still have good stuff, even with his velocity down. Phillies just need to get him throwing more strikes. <laughs> it's kind of a, a simple problem, but he's got that unique delivery and it's uh It'll be a project, but I kind of like the Phillies as a sneaky wildcard contender because there's just not a good second wildcard contender in the National League. Mm -hmm. And we talked on the Phillies preview recently about all the uncertainty in the rotation and how the bullpen would have to step up and how they were thinking about a nine-man bullpen or something just to find the innings somewhere. So they needed someone like Arietta and... Even if it doesn't come together quite in time for 2018, he'll be there for a while longer. And certainly at some point during this contract, whether or not it's extended, the Phillies will be competitive and contending and they'll need someone like Jack Garrett. And as we also discussed, they have all the payroll room in the world. So this is not really a, a significant hit in any way that's going to prevent them from doing anything else or being players in next year's free agent market. So it makes perfect sense. So look what's happened here. The the Phillies signed Arietta, the Rockies re-signed Carlos Gonzalez, the A's signed Luke Roy, the Twins signed Lynn, the Royals signed Moustakas. This is good, right? Because those players, they're not going to the to the top teams. The top teams have already settled, mm -hmm. but we're seeing that there is money available to these players on all. Every team that I just mentioned has some sort of reasonable shot at the playoffs this year, which is, which mm -hmm. is good. I think that we're going to have some fun wildcard races. And I think just as there are a lot of downward errors for Jake Arrieta, I mean, Jonathan Lucroy's case is maybe even worse yes. <laughs> looking for, for the player. Because at least Arietta's pitches moved well uh, last year, and Luke Roy didn't really do anything well except hit the ball and hit the ball weakly. But mm -hmm. that's kind of just a position player comparison case. And if Luke Roy bounces back to be a good catcher, all of a sudden the A's are starting to look pretty good, as will be discussed <laughs> later in this episode when we talk to Susan Slusser. That's right. So just one last thing. Travis Sachik has been writing about the so-called middle class of free agents, which seems to have been hit the hardest. And he's including guys like Neil Walker, for instance, and he defined the middle class as the players whom the Fangraphs crowd forecast to sign deals of $45 million or less. And this group has signed for contracts about 38% below the crowd's dollar forecasts this offseason, whereas at the top of the market, the estimates have been fairly spot on. So that's one thing, and, and that falls in line with what we were just talking about and teams thinking they can replace these mediocre guys with their own internal talent. But the guys in that group who have exceeded the crowd's forecasts have essentially all been relievers and Travis has a table in this post I can link to the post but he has the lines highlighted in gold of the guys who got more than the crowd expected that they would get and it's all relievers Brandon Morrow, Mike Miner, Brian Shaw, Joe Smith, Juan Nicasio, Pat Neshek, Jake McGee, Tommy Hunter, and Steve Ciszek. So 
Why do you think relievers are the apparent exception to this trend? Because you would think that if part of it is that teams think they can just manufacture these guys at will, relievers seem like the group that you're most able to do that. We see that happen year in and year out. On the other hand, I guess teams are just using more relievers every year and giving a greater share of their innings to relievers. So maybe it's just a supply and demand sort of thing. I, I agree with you. And so many of these relievers signed early in the offseason. I mean, you, you think the Phillies signed Carlos Santana and the explanation was, well, we just couldn't pass up such a great value. And then you look back on that now, and you think relative to the rest of the market, that deal doesn't look good anymore. Like things just plummeted. The, the bottom came out of this market such that I think the the deals signed in the first half of free agency maybe weren't completely aware of what was going to happen to free agency. But anyway, uh, there was that run on relievers sometime around the winter meetings. And I agree with you that it does look a little strange just because you'd think teams would be most willing to try to make their own pitchers good in the bullpen since it should require the least. But on the other hand, of course, the bullpen is taking up more of the burden than ever, and that the trend is not going to stop. Teams are talking about eight-man bullpens. They're talking about nine-man bullpens. Teams need multiple good relievers now if they want to be worthwhile. You can't just divert your money to the closer anymore, and you can't just divert your money to the closer and the setup guy anymore. Now you have to have four good relievers or five good relievers because teams also don't want to use relievers on back-to-back days very often anymore. So Mm -hmm. I think probably the biggest reason here is just that teams need a lot of good relievers, or at least they believe that they need a lot of good relievers. And so if you are a talented reliever, you will get a job. But, you know, even the contracts that the relievers are signing, these are not exorbitant. I mean, Wade Davis had the high, the biggest one at 52 million, right? And then mm-hmm. everything else was in the 20s or or lower. So you're still not going to see relievers make a, a fortune. But, you know, I would probably rather have a good reliever than Lance Lynn. Yep. All right. So we can end there. Last note, Stephen Hawking died early this morning. He was obviously an important thinker in person and an inspiring figure in some ways. Also had a tenuous baseball connection, which I will briefly mention here. He was someone who held wagers, public wagers, often when there was some question that he was hoping to settle with some other scientist and they would put something at stake. So one of his famous wagers was about whether information beyond the event horizon of a black hole is irretrievably lost, whether you could, in theory, recover that information in some way, sort of a theoretical argument, as many of his were, but important from a science perspective. So he eventually came to believe that he was wrong. He believed that that information was destroyed and scrambled and you could never recover it. And gradually there was some subsequent work. He decided that it disproved his position. And so in 2004, he gave a talk at a conference. And after this talk, he announced that he was conceding the bet and he presented the other scientist who had taken the other position with a reward, and it was the eighth edition of Total Baseball, the ultimate baseball encyclopedia. And he chose this because information could be retrieved at will from Total Baseball. Although (laughs) by that point, I guess baseball reference was already around, right? So I don't know, you didn't even necessarily need Total Baseball, but that's the Stephen Hawking baseball connection that I have managed to shoehorn into this baseball podcast. How long did it take you to find that? (laughs) Uh, Someone reminded me of it in the Facebook group, (laughs) so not that long. 
All right, so we will be right back, or I will be right back with Grant Brisby to talk about the Giants. You, uh, of course, can't stand that guy, so you made yourself scarce for that interview. No, you had another conflict, couldn't be there when I talked to Grant, but you will be back after that for Susan Slusser on the A's. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, I am recording this after midnight on the East Coast, as is my guest, actually. It's weird baseball, weird baseball podcasting. I am joined by Grant Brisby, who is making his first trip to the East Coast in a quarter century. How does the East Coast strike you? It's fine. There was, uh, like, rain. Yes, unpleasant weather. But it, but it was like frozen rain, and it lightly fell from the sky today. <laughs> it, it, it was wet, but it, it, it like gently tickled me as it, as it got me wet. What oh, is that called? That sounds nice. I didn't go outside, but it sounds Yeah, like it's not rain. It's sleet? Uh, yeah, something like that. But yeah, no. Some it, form it, of weather you don't have to deal with that often, I guess. Yeah, it's weird out here. It's weird. <laughs> so you are award-winning baseball author Grant Brisby. I guess this is not your first Saber Award. You've won more than one in your day. But it's not you, my first Saber Rodeo. <laughs> you just won in the historical analysis slash commentary category for your article at SB Nation, Why Baseball Games Are So Damned Long. And while I have you here... For people who haven't read that or have forgotten it, would you care to remind us why baseball games are so damn long? Because since you wrote this article, I feel like I've cited it several times to dispel various myths about why baseball games are so damn long. So this is a a valuable article. It was a, a justified win, I think. Yeah, it's it's no, thank you. It's it's uh it's not commercials in, and that's like a common misconception. Yeah, it's just like people screwing around too much between pitches. Yeah. It's, it's just the, the, the inaction pitches. It's, it's the pitches where the batters step out. It's the pitchers are scratching themselves. It, you know, it's, it's, it's all the above. It's just not taking the time between nothing happening and throwing a pitch. That, that's why it's so long. It, it adds 15, 20 minutes to every game. Yeah, and you know that because you went back and you watched an old game, and it's valuable to know that because often when Rob Manfred unveils his latest plan for shaving off seven seconds per game here or there, someone will say, well, if they were really serious about this, they would just cut down on the ad time, and that's not entirely true. First of all, I, I guess they have slightly cut down on the ad time or at least the between innings time, but that is not the bulk of the difference. And whether or not you think that the time-saving measures he's put in place will actually do what they're intended to do, in theory, the strategy is sound. That is the stuff that we have to cut down if we want to shorten games. Right, right. I went into that project with a stopwatch thinking like it's just going to be commercials. Yeah. Like you're going to come out of it and you're, you're going to say, hey, everybody, it's commercials. <laughs> and it wasn't like the commercials. Back in 1984, 85, whatever the game was, they just like when they would bring in a reliever, they wouldn't cut to a commercial. They would just let the reliever warm up and like waste all this ad revenue, like like a complete, you know, uh, paleolithic morons, you know, like that's ad revenue. You're throwing out the window. Come on, charge somebody something. Sabaro, like, you know, FedEx, Kinko, something like and, and it was just like they would have like nothing but a pitcher warming up. 
for two minutes. It was great. I loved it, but it wasn't commercials. Like the, it, commercials are not what is behind games being so long now. It's just people screwing around. Yeah. All right. I guess we should talk about the Giants at some point. So the 2016 to 17 Giants broke you finally. You, you will now no longer be recapping Giants games. I don't know if it's a direct result of those two teams, but it couldn't have helped. <laughs> so Slightly related. Yeah. So you are giving up your day-to-day running of McCovey Chronicles. I don't know whether this means you'll have to change your Twitter handle or not, but I'm, I'm in suspense. I'm looking forward to <laughs> seeing if you're at Grant Brisby or if someone's already squatting on that. And, no, uh, I've got it. I've I got it, suckers. I got it. <laughs> so you will still be involved in the site, obviously, but you'll have more time to make award-winning Sabre articles of the future, which uh, your Giants daily recaps did not win Sabre awards. <laughs> Maybe they should have, but <laughs> so I'm I'm happy for you and sad for Giants fans that they will not be reading you as regularly, but has this upped your excitement and anticipation for the season? Is there some lingering bittersweet sense to all of this? A little bit. I mean, it, I, I do enjoy what the Giants did this offseason. And so yeah. far as, as they, they made it interesting. Um, I've watched Evan Longoria from afar and I've kind of said, wow, that's a nice player. He's complete. He, he can do this. He can do that. He can field. He can, he can do this. And Andrew McCutcheon is like my all time favorite non giant. Yeah. He's just, he's a marvel. I love watching him play. He makes me enjoy baseball more because of how much he enjoys baseball. And to have those two players on a team, that is suddenly, you know, you look at the lineup and it, I'm not saying 110 wins, but it, it's it's a lineup where I like that guy, I like that guy, I like that guy. And then they go to the rotation. It's I like this guy. I like this guy. You know, he you know, he's OK. Like it's an interesting team. And that's that's all I ask for. I, I'm you know, Giants fans are spoiled, uh, but g- give us an interesting team. And I think this, this hits all those marks. So the offseason could have played out much differently if Giancarlo Stanton had ended up accepting a trade to the Giants. Do you think that it played out to the Giants' advantage? Would they have been better off if Stanton had been their big ticket item and probably that's just about all they would have been able to afford? Did it work out better with being able to add a bunch of less expensive players? And did the fact that they weren't able to land, say, Ozuna or Yelich or someone like that, does that speak ill of the farm system, I guess? Or or did they just decide that Longoria, McCutcheon, these guys were the best fits for this team? Yeah, well, I mean, not getting Yelich and Ozuna definitely speaks ill of the farm system. Man. That, 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 that was not an accident. They, they wanted those guys. They couldn't get those guys. Um, you know, they weren't willing to give up Ramos, uh, Helio Ramos, but, uh, uh, even if they were, I don't think they would have gotten those guys. It's an interesting question because I go back and forth. I love Giancarlo Stanton. I love his dingers. Yes. I love his, his general. He's just a, an obelisk of a man. He's just, <laughs> he's, he's perfect. He's a great baseball player to enjoy baseball through at the same time. It, you know, it, it's a little bit more sensible to to shoot under that and get McCutcheon for a year. Uh, they took on a, a fairly substantial salary uh, obligation with Longoria, minimized by sending Nadard Span the other way. But still, 
if you could have given me McCutcheon in, say, Mike Moustakas on, you know, what, what did he sign for? One year, 500000 250000 <laughs> Like, give me McCutcheon and Moustakas for that. And the Giants give up a draft pick, but but uh, uh, keep Arroyo. And they don't have the, the financial obligations that they do with Longoria. I think I would have preferred that most of all, even though I, Longoria is probably a better fit for AT&T than, than Moustakas. All things being considered... I probably would rather have Stanton, but it's pretty close. I like I like McCutcheon, I like Longoria for this team, this really super hyper win now team, and you know to get close after losing out on Stanton, and then they were also in on Otani, you know, so it was like, you know, I, I Black Wednesday when all of a sudden it was like, nope, they're out, nope, they're out, and they were out on Stanton and Otani. It was like, wow, this offseason's ruined. <laughs> so I think they did well considering that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the dingers, and Stanton himself would have hit more dingers maybe than the 2017 Giants did. And you've written about how few dingers they hit and just how it seems like AT&T Park has, for some strange reason, just been completely exempt from whatever has happened, whether it's the ball or launch angles or some combination of all of those things. Have you come up with or has anyone else come up with any theories for why that's the case? And do you think the Giants will actually hit some dingers this year? No, they should hit more dingers just by default. Uh, You've got McCutcheon, you've got Longoria. I have no theories. I just know that ATT Park was just when other teams came in. It wasn't just the Giants. When other teams came in, they hit fewer dingers. It was there fewer home runs across the board regardless of it if it's a rabbit ball or or swing path launching or whatever have you so i don't know what's wrong specifically with att park just that it was sort of fair and that it was really a problem of the giants being bad at hitting home runs did you care i mean aside from the fact that the giants weren't good is it okay that the giants were kind of playing a different type of baseball than everyone else was playing because Uh, There are some people who think there are too many home runs being hit right now and home runs have been cheapened and it's just too easy to hit one. And that is not the experience of Giants fans. So this is like this little isolated world where baseball is still played (laughs) like it's 1987 or something. So I don't know if that's good that we have this kind of hermetically sealed environment time capsule from another era or whether you just kind of want them to get with the program and start hitting bombs every inning or two it's the land that time forgot you know it's it's a when people start to complain like the giants need more home runs need more home runs uh in 2012 they dead last in the in the national league yeah it runs dead last barely cracked 100 and it's a different time. It's more of a pitcher-friendly time in 2012. But they were dead last in home runs in the league. And they won the World Series. And it wasn't, like, aesthetically horrible to watch that team. They were a fun team even before the postseason. It was uh, – they won. They won a lot. They went through pitching. They went through uh, uh, line drive hitters and, and gap hitters and stuff like that. I don't mind that team as long as they win. Mm-hmm. As as long as a team wins, I'm not necessarily concerned if they're hitting 250 homers or if they're pitching their way to the postseason. Just just give me wins and not 98 losses. And so, to to go kind of uh, monomaniacally for like home runs, like that is our new focus. I I think that's a little misguided, but 
you know, I, I would like to see a little more home run. It, it, just give me, give me something, <laughs> you know, sprinkle some home runs over over these games. But if if they don't hit more home runs, that's fine. Just just win more games, pitch better, feel better, whatever you have. So one of the stories of this offseason was the Giants' efforts to stay under the competitive balance tax threshold, which I guess they have managed to limbo under that bar somehow. Uh, Right now, they seem to have the highest payroll in the National League. And (laughs) feel free to answer this question in character as super woke Grant Brisby, the character you debuted in your Mike (laughs) Moustakis signing analysis. But... How did they stay under? Did they stay under? Does this mean they can't make any in-season moves? They have some contracts coming off the books after this year, right, with Pence and McCutcheon. So how did they manage to squirm their way under this if they actually did? The way it was explained to me is that some of the contracts that are publicly out there are actually a little bit less for the purposes of luxury tax, specifically Madison Bumgarner. Madison Baumgartner is uh, technically, uh, and I'm going to pull these numbers out from my nether regions, but like Madison Baumgartner's luxury tax uh, calculation is 10 million as opposed to 12 million, which is what we thought. And okay. I mean, it seems like they've, they've spent all off season really focusing on this to the point where they had to get so creative and I'm torn between being like I have, I, I just I'm amazed at the creativity and I applaud the creativity to trade Matt Moore, uh, involved Denard Span in this uh, sort of deal with with Evan Longoria. Like they had to juggle a lot of chainsaws to get under this this luxury tax cal- calculation. At the same time, it's like it just just come on, just just spend the money, just just give up, you know, whatever the draft picks, the international bonus pool next year. If you're really going all in on this offseason. It just just go in, just just fail in a couple of years like the Phillies or the Tigers. Just <laughs> go in for this offseason. And so I'm torn between the two because they limboed like it's a beautiful limbo to get under. Yeah. At the, uh, it, so I'm torn. It, it, there's some creativity, but I'm not sure if it's necessary considering that they still sell 35,000 tickets a game. Yeah. And part of the reason this is an expensive team is that this is an old team. And I don't know whether it's a coincidence that Brian Sabian is now seemingly back running the team day to day or something close to it. And also the team is old, but there was a time when Brian Sabian's teams were known for being old and veteran and not much else. And there were those sort of sad years where it was just bonds and nothing else. And it was old and it wasn't very encouraging but this team i think is more well-rounded certainly and the talent is better distributed but when brandon belt turns 30 next month joe panic will be the only member of the starting lineup who is under 30 and it doesn't get a whole lot younger from there and of course the farm system is not especially strong as we already discussed so how big a problem is this beyond 2018? How much do you look at this roster and see what we saw with, say, the Tigers to invoke another team you just mentioned when we could sort of see the end coming for them years before it actually did? It's a pretty big concern. The only saving grace is that with 31 and 32-year-olds, you shouldn't expect 31 and 32-year-olds to just disintegrate into a pillar of ash. 
That's not necessarily how baseball has to work every time. When you get to 34, 35, you know, maybe 33, that's when you start, when the 30s really start creeping in on you. And the Giants don't have that with a lot of their position players. So it, it's a concern in insofar as that 30-year-olds get hurt more often. That That's just, you know, science. But the Giants don't have deep 30-year-olds. If that's Maybe that's just me hedging and trying to convince myself and up-talking on a podcast to make <laughs> myself feel better. You know what I mean? It's like it, it seems like they're old, but they're not like super old. They're yeah. not uh, that that Yankees at the end of where it's like A-Rod is 73 years old and Mark Teixeira is like you know, coming out there in a walker. Like that kind of old seems so far and above what the Giants have. The Giants have guys who were good last year and the year before that for the most part. And maybe they'll be good this year. You know, it's like you've got guy. Brandon Crawford wasn't as good. Brandon Bell was hurt. But to a man, when you look at that projected lineup, they should be OK. If I weren't a Giants fan, I'd probably be more optimistic. But I watched last year. So that's impossible. <laughs> right. And obviously, Brandon Belt is maybe the guy there's the most question about, maybe one of the highest upside players in the lineup, but one of the ones with the greatest injury concerns as well has long been a divisive player among Giants fans, probably for undeserved reasons. But what does even a Brandon Belt booster at this point in his career coming off all of the concussions that he's dealt with, what is it reasonable to expect? With good health, a good player, a solid player, a, a player you're happy to have in your your everyday lineup. For people who might not be Giants fans, his injuries are basically him getting hit in the head with baseballs. One was thrown by his teammate, got curveball that hung and hit him in the head. You have him getting hit in the head by someone's knee while he's sliding into second base. He, he has some pretty, pretty poor luck. And if he can just not get hit in the head with knees or baseballs, he he should be good. He he had he does a lot of good things. He hits for extra base power. He has good on base percentage. He's a good fielder. He's probably uh, the worst fit for AT&T Park that a first baseman could be being right. left-handed and having just enough power to make frustrating outs. But at the same time, he's a good player. He's a he's a very good player. If he stays healthy, why wouldn't he be a good player at age 30? Yeah. And the Giants outfield was just abominable last year. That was a, a very big part of the not home run hitting aspect of the team. And most of that outfield is now gone, replaced by McCutcheon and Austin Jackson. But Hunter Pence still here. He is the oldest member of the lineup. He is maybe the one guy who's in the deep 30s. As you said, he's uh, right. about to turn 35. So what does he have left? He has to fight for his job, and I think he's clear about that. Uh, it's not like the Giants have great options behind him, but what are the prospects that they do have? Is you know, powerful guy Chris Shaw. He 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 has legitimate power. He's a prospect that is held in some regard. He and a lot of people are telling me that he plays left field better than first base. So when people say he doesn't have a position, they, I'm, I've heard that no, he kind of can play left field. Like he, he's okay in left. And he's got left-handed power, which isn't great for AT&T Park, but he's good enough of a prospect to push Pence. If he's hitting in Sacramento, 
if he is hitting home runs or hitting for average, whatever you have you, and Pence is scuffling, well, you know, there's a conversation to be had. And I think Pence knows that. Uh, Pence is a super competitive guy. He's he's in great shape. He, He certainly hasn't let himself go. So maybe that pushes him. And if it doesn't, there's at least one upper minors guy to kind of come on strong. In spring training, Mac Williamson is, is going bananas, and he supposedly has a, a revamped swing and, and a revamped approach. So that's something to watch. But if that doesn't work out, Chris Shaw is at least going to push Pence from, from below. And I'm cautiously optimistic with Pence as far as like maybe he can be a league average player, and and I would be totally into that because I, I love watching Pence play. Mm-hmm. And Austin Jackson hasn't really been a full-time player for a few years at this point. So, I mean, the options at center field for the Giants, that position was looking pretty scary at certain points this winter. So will he be an everyday guy or do you see him splitting time there too? I think Steven Duggar will take some time. The Giants made their first round of cuts and Duggar, Stephen Duggar was not among them. Mm-hmm. It, there's a reason for that. The, the Giants really want to give him every chance to win that center field job. Uh, maybe not the full, the, you know, the, the full shebang, but to give him at bats against tough right-handed pitchers. Uh, Gregor Blanco is also in camp, and he's doing well. But if he makes the team, he's going to make a cool million in guaranteed money. And Duggar will make the major league minimum. And the Giants are skating so thinly under that (laughs) luxury tax that they really would prefer Duggar to win that semi-platoon spot. And he's doing great so far in camp. He's hitting a lot of home runs. He's he's playing a, a solid center field defense. It's spring training, sure, but this is sort of the plan, I think, that they've had all offseason is to get to March have Duggar be in contention. They weren't going to give any more prospects up for, say, what the Brewers had in their surplus. They were just going to kind of ride it out with Austin Jackson, a minor league free agent who happened to be a familiar guy in Blanco, and maybe Duggar. And they're going to give Duggar every chance to fail is, is kind of what I'm reading. So we should talk about Bumgarner. I know that there have been some extension talks between him and the team. Nothing has happened doesn't need to it's not super urgent there's a team option for 2019 but one reason to wait before signing something is that it's not totally clear if Bumgarner is still peak Bumgarner post dirt bike and (laughs) there were some somewhat troubling aspects of his performance at least immediately after he came back I guess he sort of picked up down the stretch but looking at post-return Bumgarner, was there any reason to worry that he won't be the same guy that he's been in the past? He looked pretty similar to me. I was I was expecting a, a little bit of a slower ramp up and by the end of the season saying, ah, I could take something positive from this. But he really came out sport is sort of kind of similar to the, the Bumgarner we were used to. So he's thrown hard this spring. He's very motivated. He's looking a little trimmer. Uh, this spring, best shape of his life, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But he looked good enough last year to where I haven't spent a lot of uh, off-season real estate in my brain thinking about, boy, what if he isn't? You know, he's young enough. He he pitched well enough last year. He was a 200 inning machine in the years before that. So I think he'll be fine. 
And you've probably devoted slightly more real estate to Johnny Cueto than I would imagine who many people didn't expect would still be with the Giants, would still be under this contract. And he opted not to opt out because of the season he had last year. So was there any positive you can take from what he was last year? Or is he another guy who seems like he might be on the downside of things? He's a little bit of a different case because when I search for optimism in his in his case, I'm looking I'm eliminating 2017. I'm going, well, this guy was good for seven years before that. Yeah, he had ups, downs, but the, he was always an all star signing candidate. What have you top of the rotation guy to find optimism with Cueto. It's more that last year was a blip rather than I watched this guy. He was probably fine. Because he he was off last year. He didn't have his command necessarily. He he didn't have that uh, that sort of uh, quaitosity that defined him <laughs> for the the years before that. He he was just off, and maybe that's a decline. Giants fans know that once you decline, you don't have to come back. They saw it with the Lincecum. They saw it with Matt Cain. That just because you were good for years and years before that doesn't mean that you have to find whatever it is that you lost. But Cueto, he was so good before, and then you can also make accommodations for, well, he had blisters. Well, he had, you know, forearm tightness. He he was dinged up. He'll be fine. And I can be optimistic, but it's not the same as Bumgarner, where I saw him and I said, this guy's pretty much the same. Cueto was a marked difference from what he was the year before. Yeah, I guess I could ask that question or that question format about most players who played on the Giants last year. Just (laughs) He was better before. Will he be better again? We could just (laughs) replace Johnny Cueto with Brandon Crawford, for instance, I guess. Is is Brandon Crawford going to bounce back? Yeah. Maybe like you know, it's the same kind of answer. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, he had some some horrific familial problems last year. He was he was uh, he had some personal things that were going on that you you just you forget about the human side of baseball, and you think, okay, well maybe that explains it. But I want to be a ghoul and and say, well, you know that that's what explains everything. Ha ha! Now he's going to be good again. Like. Maybe he's just declining. I think a comp that has always stuck out to me for Crawford, both offensively and defensively, is J.J. Hardy. And once J.J. Hardy sort of lost what his bat had, he didn't come back all the way. And that could happen with Crawford. At the same time, it's like the Cueto thing. He was good before. Or maybe he'll be good again. It, it, yeah. And with Crawford, it's it's a matter of he seems to get incrementally better to get back to where he was, both defensively and offensively. And he doesn't have to do it at 31, but he's still like like the, the floor is pretty low with Crawford. And what about the rotation behind Bumgarner? I know it's somewhat uncertain and amorphous. I know a lot of people, I think including Jeff, like Chris Stratton. So is that going to come together? Is that going to be kind of a, a carousel all season? Does Jeff talk about Stratton's spin rate? Yes, I think so. Does, maybe Does he Does he breath? Not as, not as, not as much as Eno, <laughs> maybe, but I think he's, he's mentioned it. He breathlessly talks about Stratton's spin rate. Uh, <laughs> I like Block and Stratton. I would like one of them as a number five. Both of them together seem a little bit risky. 
I would like Alex Cobb in the number four. That's not going to happen. So I can see upsides for both. Block is another guy that has a uh, a low floor, um, maybe not the highest ceiling. Maybe not there isn't a ceiling. Maybe it's a yurt. You know, maybe it's <laughs> it's not there's there's not a lot above to have a ceiling. He's just a guy, and that that's fine. He's he's going to throw strikes. He's going to work quickly. He's going to field his position well and sort of like make all those corners that that turns a. Uh, fifth starter candidate into someone who kind of sticks with the position for a few years. Stratton seems to have a higher upside because his curveball came out of nowhere. And I, I'm as tickled as anybody like, wow, all of a sudden Chris Stratton has like this curveball that people are talking about. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, so did Seth Lugo. Like I, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's so kind of like uh, uh intangible to me to like this guy didn't have that much of a minor league career to speak of and now he's got this this sort of magic pitch is he going to be a a quality fourth starter i don't know but i'm eager to find out until like hey when i don't want to find out so (laughs) and just to tick off one more thing that the 2017 giants were bad at the bullpen was uh, one of those things it now includes tony watson and Hopefully a healthy Mark Melanson. Is this a good bullpen? Jeff and I talked recently about who the heck knows about any bullpen ever. But based on what we do know, would you say this is closer to one of the good Giants bullpens of old? Or is this another problem spot? No, I think it's a pretty okay bullpen. I'm willing to err on the... uh, like I'm, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to Melanson. I think he is better than he was last year. I did just he was terrible last year. He was hurt last year. Fine. I'll, I will give him a mulligan. I do like when Will Smith comes back in May or so from Tommy John. I really like the Tony Watson, Will Smith combo of lefties out of the bullpen. You can go down the line and I Corey Gearin really is tough against right handers. Hunter Strickland for all his flaws is a pretty solid reliever. Sam Dyson, for all his flaws, he has, you know, he's got a weird sinker. I mean, just like this hard 95 mile per hour sinker that you want to work. And there were flashes of that brilliance working again last year. So it's not going to be a great bullpen. It's not the Yankees. It's it's a bullpen that should be far better than they've received for the the last two years, just because the last two years were abominable in so many ways in luck was one of those ways they just they had poor everything so this year should be better when we did our orioles preview i mentioned that the orioles had a lot of players who were born in the u.s that they had the second highest percentage of u.s born players of any team on their 40-man roster the giants have the highest at 82.5 percent And that's a lot. The average for a 40-man is like 68.5%. With the Orioles, the explanation was basically that they don't believe in signing players from anywhere else, that ownership just thinks that's a good idea to just bypass the rest of the world entirely. So they make essentially zero effort to change that number. The Giants' number is even higher. Is that also a result of philosophy, or is that just how things have shaken out with this current group for one reason or another? Uh, with the pitching staff, I think it's certainly philosophy. Like, uh, I believe – I'm going to get the name wrong, but Johnny Cueto was the first Dominican-born pitcher to win a game for the Giants since 
Sergio Valdez mm-hmm. in like the 90s. It, and I might have that wrong, but it's something just just ghastly where it's like, what? Like the, the team that's famous for the Dominican dandy has had that sort of gap between Dominican born pitchers winning a single game. Right. It's been a really rough stretch for them internationally. I don't know if it's philosophy or if it's just them whiffing. They're sort of changing things up and they're they've got a new farm director in David Bell. They have a, a new baseball academy in the Dominican, the Felipe Alou Baseball Academy in the Dominican. So they're going to try and sort of redouble their efforts in that direction. But they haven't had a lot of international successes for decades. Pablo Sandoval is a notable exception. But it's been a real, real dry spell. And I don't know why, mm-hmm. but it's been noticeable. So I, I think that's a huge part of it. I think another part of it is that, that they hit in the draft – with players who weren't necessarily blue chip top of the first round prospects where you've got Belt, Crawford, Panic, you know, Duffy when he was here, but guys who sort of slid to them or, or maybe they pounced a little bit ahead of time in, in, in Panic's case. So those guys were picked. They were good. They stuck around. So that's part of it. But the other part is that their Dominican efforts have been terrible in, for decades, decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that takes us to the traditional win total prediction. So give us the 2018 Giants win total to be. One. <laughs> 84. I'm going to go 84. Okay. I'm gonna, it's it's, it's going to be enough to keep them sort of chugging and interesting in September. But I don't know. I go back and forth. I'm, I'm really excited about watching this team this season. But I watched last season, and so I'm a little bit scarred. And I, I know the projections are saying uh, 85, 86, and they're going to contend for a second wild card spot. And that sounds great. That sounds great. I just I watched last year, and they were the worst baseball team in the history of baseball. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you can watch Tim Lincecum, I guess. Is that going to be weird or fun for you to see him? Fun. fun entirely fun. I mean, for the Rangers, I'm like a, a secret A's fan, so it's not like ideal for secret A's fans, but, I, you know, he's not on the Dodgers. Give me a Cy Young season. Give me that, like, Bartolo Colon, what? He's back from the dead, um, and now he's a rotational stalwart. Give me that for the Rangers. I would love that. (laughs) All right. Well, you can still read Grant occasionally at McCovey Chronicles and whomever he designates as his successor, and you can read him more regularly now at SBNation.com. You can also find him on Twitter at McCovey Cron, or you can just get ahead of everyone else and follow Grant Brisby, I guess and see if that eventually turns out to be Grant. And you can still see him on TV, too. How can people see you on TV? That would be after every 7 o'clock Giants game in the Bay Area. I'm on NBC Sports Bay Area as one and a half of the Giants outsiders. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be more fun, probably, to talk after those games than it was for you last year. A little when... bit of a stretch last year. A little <laughs> bit of a stretch. Yeah. All right. Well, I wish you a happy season of fewer recaps, even no recaps. I don't know what you'll do with all your time. Some recaps. Some recaps. Okay. Well, enjoy it. Get to know your kids and your your family and uh, sleep. And always a pleasure. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. One of those kids is really tall now. She's weird. I guess like, ah, you're you're a big kid now. What happened? (laughs) 
All right. Thanks, Grant. All right. Thanks so much, man. Okay, so we'll take another quick break and we'll be back with Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle to talk about the Oakland A's. This is gonna be a dark road. Keep both believed in something. Had it taken from them. You'll want to forget about this road. Okay, so we are joined now by the great Susan Slusser, longtime A's beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, who is technically off right now, but is joining us nonetheless. Hey, Susan, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? All right. And I guess our timing is good because we're talking to you after the A's made a significant signing, which is a rarity for them. Their offseason is not filled with free agents. So... How did the Jonathan Lucroy deal come together? I know that he seemed to be someone who wanted to go to a winner, but is another one of these guys whose market seemingly was not there to the extent that he had hoped. Yeah, this qualifying offer system is really not working on the benefit of the free agents as, as often, I think, as they, they had hoped. Uh, you know, the, the people that cover the A's all winter, we had been asking, you know, is there a possibility that... You, the team would add a catcher because it, it seemed to, you know, going into the season with Bruce Maxwell, who was coming off sort of his, uh, you know, a, a subpar rookie year, his offensive numbers were not what they had expected. Uh, he's still learning to work with pitchers. Uh, and then the right-handed possibilities are uh, Josh Fegley and Dustin Garneau. So, you know, it looked like a, a spot where they could add, especially given how low their payroll was. The A's were at $63.5 million before the signing, and they were adamant that they weren't really going to be going over that. And this isn't coming from the front office, obviously. It's ownership that sets the budget. But uh, word was that they were not adding. But I think as spring went along and LaCroix was still out there and the A's catching possibilities were, you know, maybe just a little bit above mediocre. I think they, they felt like, especially with the number of young pitchers that they have, that getting a veteran starting catcher would probably be a good idea. Lucroy in particular is a really interesting case as I've written about and Ben has written about at far greater length talking about how Lucroy was a sort of a sabermetric darling and he is just great hitter great defensive catcher I know that he's I mean he's barely even been around I don't know if you've even had the chance to meet him yet but have you gotten any sense at all talking to people with a team that they even know what to do with Lucroy's decline or is this basically just a one-year gamble because at the position like you said they didn't really have anything else of great quality. Well, it's a little bit of a gamble. I mean, certainly with the A's in their front office and how plugged in they are with metrics. And I think that he's a guy they've, they've always liked, certainly. Uh, and to get him for a deal like that, my goodness, $6.5 million is, um, it's just an absolute steal. So I think they're hoping that maybe the decline is something that can be reversed or explained. Or his, you know, he maybe his time behind the plate will be limited to certain pitchers that they really are concerned about developing and making sure that they're they're kind of shepherded along well in games. So uh, kind of a little bit to be seen. Bruce Maxwell obviously is a left-handed hitter. The A's are very big on platoons, particularly at catcher. So it could be that he does not wind up spending that much time behind the plate, which maybe frees him up to... Um, 
you know, if, if he DH is here and, and there, uh, even though Chris Davis is obviously the primary DH, maybe that helps um, him kind of get back on, on board. You mentioned the front office being into metrics, and I'm always curious about that sort of thing. We know that some things with the A's have not changed. They're still working on a new ballpark, and if I look at their page on roster resource, they have the lowest projected payroll in baseball. They also have the most or highest percentage of players on their 40 men that were acquired via trade. Only the Rays have a higher percentage who obviously are in a similar situation. So those have all been hallmarks of the A's for years. But the front office is sort of a a mystery to me, at least. It was maybe the least mysterious front office in the immediate aftermath of Moneyball, but I think a lot of teams have caught up in a lot of ways, maybe even surpassed them in a lot of ways, certainly in terms of just labor, in terms of the number of people in the front office. So are the A's still a team that is finding edges that other teams aren't and exploring directions and angles that other teams aren't? Or have they just sort of been caught up to or, or even lapped by some of the other very analytics-heavy teams? Well, I think the problem is less a, a – I mean, they, it is a very small front office. That's true. But I think it's less to do with manpower than it is to do with budget. You know, Moneyball did not serve the A's well. It, it put out kind of their methods to a bunch of teams that have resources that are vastly superior. So take, for example, they lose one of their top people in Farhan Zaidi goes to the Dodgers and, you know, the, the payroll is five times what the A's is. It, they can't, the A's can't compete with that. So they're always trying to find the different little, you know, it, it, there's so much misinterpretation of Moneyball, but essentially it comes down to finding the the uh, elements that are, are undervalued in the marketplace. And mm-hmm. I, I would tell you that right now what they've been trying to do is now they're going more athletic, which is really a massive shift for them. At about, you know, seven or eight years ago, they went defense. They thought might be a little bit of an edge for them. That didn't quite pan out as they had hoped, you know, and then they tried to do some outside the box thinking like, we'll get Joanna Cespedes in on a shorter deal than anybody else would get him and see if that works. I think that athleticism for the first time in a long time is the thing they're valuing, which is what you see in the players they are getting back in some of those trades they've made the last few years. So um, maybe stealing bases more. Uh, last year, they were so reliant on the home run. Um, really, you know, vast percentage of their runs came on homers. So I, I think they're trying to shift outside of that. But again, they have to do that in parameters with a, a very small budget. As you can look at the A's roster right now, you can see the optimism around the development of sort of that offensive core that you've you've touched on a little bit. There's, of course, Matt Chapman and, and Matt Olson had phenomenal debuts last season. Chris Davis is an excellent hitter at DH. I don't need to go through every single position player, but you look at at the rotation, and right there, this is the case for maybe a lot of teams, but it seems like it's the rotation that would be holding the A's back from being highly competitive this season. And you've got Kendall Graveman, who maybe hasn't gotten to his ceiling. Sean Manaya's had his ups and downs. Jarrell Cotton hasn't developed. This is all a long way of getting around to asking about A.J. Puck, because two seasons ago, A.J. Puck was drafted by the A's in the first round, sixth overall. He's struck out the world in the minor leagues, and he's making, it seems like, a pretty strong push to make the big league roster. Probably not opening day this season, but pretty shortly thereafter. So when you look at the A's crop of starters right now, is is Puck pretty clearly far and away the guy with the most even short-term upside here? 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. He looks like a, he looks, he really does look like a potential star in the making. Uh, now he, there's no way he breaks on opening day. They have to ensure that extra year of service time. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not until June to make sure that they, you know, they'll, they'd say no roster manipulation here, but uh, eliminating a potential fourth year of arbitration just makes sense for a low budget team. But he also hasn't pitched above the double A level. A couple of months at Nashville is not going to hurt him. That said, Whenever he joins rotation, he's automatically the, the most talented and um, just the most physically imposing, fearsome. Yeah, you know, shamanized a tall, imposing left-hander, but he doesn't have the mound presence of Puck and doesn't have that. This the stuff is just phenomenal. He's far and away Benier's best-looking pitcher. This uh, every scout that comes in is you can you can look at that. They're like salivating. I get texts during his his spring appearances, like you know, here's his gun reading, and you know that's it's pretty. It's pretty impressive. It almost seemed like the A's future flipped from pitching to position players in the middle of last year. I remember when we did the preview last year, it seemed like the A's might be a potential surprise team because of their rotation. And a lot of those guys (laughs) got hurt or had shaky seasons. But then on the position playing side, things really picked up. And of course, Olsen and Chapman made amazing debuts and there were a lot of other players to get excited about. And now it suddenly seems like the A's are a team with more talented position players than pitchers possibly and with those guys on the roster they were very close to a 500 team in the second half of last season so what's the expectation for those guys and for people like Chapman and Olsen I mean is it realistic to double their partial seasons from last year or is that expecting too much well I think doubling it might be a little too you know they're going to hit some bumps uh, here and there. Chapman might be a little more realistic. Certainly his defense is going to be phenomenal no matter what. That's his yeah. number one attribute. He's a just a superb fielder. But he's going to have some some bumps. Now, Matt Olson's his homer rate was astonishing. I can't mm-hmm. imagine him keeping that up. But something even, you know, slightly along those lines, the, the A's are going to be thrilled. I mean, he's, he's without a doubt got 30, 40 plus home run power. So anything in the 25 to 35 home run range, I think they would be more than happy and and also a very good fielder. So uh, it, there will be growing pains, but I think these are two very solid players who will be in the A's lineup for a long time. The question is going to be, are the A's finally going to put really put their money literally where their mouth has been? They've been saying we're going to start signing some of these guys to long-term deals. Are they? Chapman looks like the guy who could be the team star, the face of a franchise for a long time. He's a Scott Boris client. The A's typically have not given long-term deals to to those kind of players. He's the one they need to start with. So uh, that is going to be absolutely fascinating. But the fact that they have now started developing position players, it's been a long time since they yeah. did that. Going back to the days of Eric Chavez and Miguel Tejada, Ramon Hernandez, that was the last group that the A's developed themselves. And I think it, it's really uh, an fantastic way for the A's to go because they've always, the front office has been very good at identifying pitchers in other teams, minor league systems that they can acquire and turn into really good starters. Um, you know, that they've, they've obviously done a good job of developing pitching themselves. You know, Sonny Gray came from their system, you know, big three, et, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they obtained Jared Parker, Rich Harden, a uh, number, you know, Brett Anderson, Gio Gonzalez, all, they're all guys that came over in trades. They're very good at, you know, the one year sort of signs of guys who are, maybe coming back from something, um, Scott Casimir's, Rich Hills, guys like that. So 
I, I think they're really good at cobbling together good pitching. If they can develop some decent position players as they are now, I think that does speak well for their future. And you mentioned the money. Obviously, the A's have habitually not spent a lot, and they're one of the four teams that were included in the grievance that the Players Association lodged this spring against teams that according to the Players Association, may not be spending their revenue-sharing dollars as they should. And, of course, the A's revenue-sharing dollars are being phased out anyway under the current CBA. So what was the team's response, if any, to this grievance? And how is the phasing out of the revenue-sharing dollars affecting how the A's are operating in general? Well, they kind of laughed about the grievance because, first of all, as you mentioned, their revenue-sharing is being phased out. But they also... You know, they offered Brian Nunsing $3 million more than he eventually took from the Cubs. And that's a constant, like almost every offseason, the A's offer some free agent more than he eventually signs with for another team. They're like, you know, we're trying to spend some of our money here. Um, So they wind up getting creative to get a left-handed reliever and essentially paying Brandon Moss's contract for this year so they could bring in Ryan Buchter. The the union looks at that and doesn't see a big free agent signing, right? Because it was a sort of more of a creative financial trade. Uh, But the A's are like, hey, this is how we're going to have to do it if we can't lure free agents to come play at the Coliseum, um, frankly. Uh, Definitely the loss of revenue sharing is impacting their payroll. I mean, you can look at it right now. They're at $69 I can't imagine it it going up much at all unless there's you know something really um unexpected happens so uh yeah that that's really definitely a concern they are lowering their payroll in a sort of a commensurate manner with the loss of of their revenue sharing checks they say the only way that changes is if they get a new ballpark the big news this offseason was the massive setback they had in their their potential ballpark plans they'd identified a site they were enthusiastic about it, sort of got got a little upswell of optimism in the fan base. And then uh, the rug got yanked out from underneath them when the community college district with it, that owns the land said, no, nope, we're not going to talk to you about it anymore. So they're back to square one, really. Uh, the Coliseum seems like the only real practical solution could be quicker, certainly would be cheaper and, and little to no red tape. But they seem resistant to that. I I think ultimately they will come back to that. And I think they could still do it on their timeline of 2023. But it's, you know, it's not sort of the sexy, big splash that I think ownership wanted to make. It's not a fancy downtown ballpark. But really, that's not available in Oakland anyway. They've been trying to kind of shoehorn in something that they could say is downtown. And uh, nothing's really ideal. That community college site would have been really nice. Maybe they can go back to that and try to make that work. If not, I think it's the Coliseum. But uh, really, everything's tied to that right now. Well, the new stadium is going to be my next question. So now I'll force in a very different (laughs) question. So talking about the young position player core that the A's have developed, there have been a lot of guys who've pushed into the major leagues. And again, Chapman, Olsen, they've already hit. Franklin Barreto hasn't hit yet in his limited time in the majors, but he's coming close. He's uh, he's there as the attempted salvation of the Josh Donaldson trade, I guess, a few years ago. But what would be this season? Barreto, I, I believe he's had a pretty good spring. What would be his path to getting some playing time? Because, of course, the infield is starting to feel crowded. And as much as Marcus Simeon maybe isn't defined by his upside, he hasn't been a bad player by any means as a regular shortstop. So how does Barreto crack in? Well, I think I see Barreto more as a second base at this point anyway. I think what he'd be looking at is kind of what we thought would happen last year is, is if the A's moved Jed Lowry at the at the deadline. Now, Jed Lowry kind of quietly had the best all-around season of any of the A's offensive players last year. So uh, they have so few veterans. He's 
turned into the really the leader of the team. He's the guy all these young guys, Chapman and Olsen, look to. So I'm not even sure that they would move him at the deadline. Um, but Barreto is so young. He just turned 22. Another year or coming up in case of an injury or, or here and there, as he did last year, I don't, I don't think that's going to certainly set him back at all. Uh, he's there. I think he's very close to ready, if not ready. Uh, so it's a good problem to have. I think they feel like they've got numerous options there. He's more than good depth in, in the event of an injury. And if they decide to move somebody else, uh, he would certainly come up and, and be ready to go. You mentioned the ballpark being a problem in attracting potential free agents. And there was perhaps a revealing quote when Marcelo Zuna was not traded to the A's. He told MLB.com, the first thing I heard was they were going to trade me to the Oakland A's. I said, God, please leave me over here. Then I heard they traded me to the Cardinals. And I said, OK, thanks. <laughs> so is that, you think, the the larger perception of the A's among players? And is that purely ballpark related? I mean, is there any way they could make themselves more appealing, more attractive, or is it just going to have to come down to the ballpark? Well, not having talked to Azuna, you know, I would like to know sometimes it's, it's ballpark related coming from there. I'm not necessarily sure that would be the case. Uh, sometimes it's just being on one coast versus the other. If you're looking at it like, okay, this is a last place team. They're potentially a last place team. This is closer to, you know, my home. Uh, that we hear an awful lot. A lot of guys prefer to be in the middle or on the East Coast, depending on where they live in the offseason or where their family is. Um, so they just have a lot of sort of strikes against them when it comes to attracting guys. Uh, it often is the Coliseum, but it's not only. And then currently it's the fact that they, they don't appear to be necessarily contenders. I'd argue that they, they might be a little better this year than, than people expect. And I th- certainly think that they're, Sort of their trend line is good, but you know, a guy who's probably not thinking that in December when his name starts popping up in, in rumors, like, oh, well, they think they're assembling a good young core. Of, you know, he's, he's thinking, like, oh, geez, I like it here in Florida. My family's nearby, and that, I've heard that place is a terrible place to play. Chris Davis is, he's not young, but he's, he's not old. He's a premium hitter. He's developed well. He's a core of the, the A's lineup. And I think, w- one of the things that's really interesting about Chris Davis, he's being moved now to designated hitter, but he's not a bad fly catcher. His range is fine. He he finished above average last year and sat cast catches above average. But of course, with Chris Davis, the the problem was was his arm, and it wasn't so much a physical thing. I know there were there were rumors that Davis had 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 some sort of injury in college and he just didn't have a clean throwing motion. But he wrote, I believe it was in the Players Tribune last year. He just talked about how it was a, a cycle block and he couldn't make very good throws from the corner outfield and, and that was it it was comical if it wasn't so dispiriting so have you ever encountered anything like that on the position player side of course we've seen pitchers with the yips from time to time but davis statistically had the least valuable arm in baseball and it's not a surprise because his brain wouldn't let him throw the ball accurately or or with strength so have you have you ever seen that before well steve Sachs is the only thing i can think of that comes to mind with position player i mean i know there have been a few other guys that have had a sort of brief incidences of this um but this has been really a long time for chris davis you're and you're right you know i've had a lot of arguments with with ace fans over the, over the last couple of years about Chris is an outfielder. He's actually fine in every every aspect except for throwing. And you know the the A's compensate for that when when possible when he's out there. You know the 
guys know to go way out for the relay. Uh, you know, they, they kind of figured out workarounds. It doesn't, it's not the killer that I think some, you know, people see a bad throw and they think, oh my God, he's a disaster. Not, it's not, has not really been, once in a while it bites them, but every once in a while, that's the same for any outfielder is going to have a, a flub here and there. He is just not as bad. Now, I'm not sure how thrilled he is about being a full-time DH. I think he will still be in the outfield a little bit. Uh, and he has been working so hard on his throwing this spring, like every day. I mean, harder than I, I think I can even recall him. This is something he really wants to overcome. And I think there's this maybe even a sense that, okay, I'm a full-time DH now. Like maybe mentally, maybe that's something that will help him kind of get over the yips. You know, it, it doesn't matter quite as much anymore. Maybe that is the key. So uh, he might surprise some people when he's out there this year. I'm going to say it right now. I think you might see him uncork some better throws and be more consistently. Better. But he, he's just not going to get the opportunity that much now with, with Stephen Piscotty there. The interesting thing is Matt Joyce has come up with an elbow problem in spring that's going to keep him out, out of the field and he missed half of a season with a similar elbow thing five or six years ago. So that's something to keep an eye on, too. The A's have finished last in the ALS for three straight seasons, but they haven't really bottomed out, certainly the way the Astros did. They've generally been in the 70-win range. So is that by choice? Have they made the decision we're not going to plummet down to the 50-something win range? We want to remain respectable. Have they missed an opportunity that the Astros that the Cubs took advantage of, why have they not bottomed out, I suppose? Because you could imagine the A's with their payroll as low as it is and them perhaps being forward thinkers in some ways that you could you know, come up with a scenario where they get to the complete teardown rebuild before the Astros or the Cubs do. And, and certainly they have gone through rebuilds in the past, but They've remained a watchable, if somewhat bland at times, teams even through this period without much success. Yeah, they, they've never had sort of the really spectacular flame out, which is, I mean, those things can be beneficial. They, the A's have missed out on a really, you know, like a stretch of really high draft picks. And one thing they've done the last couple of years is they've gotten hot late. Last year, they played by far their best in September, or they would have had a higher draft pick this coming June. Uh, same thing, the final, the final couple of weeks of the, the previous year, they got hot. The front office likes to talk about a rebuild, and certainly they are in a rebuild, but they just can't help themselves. They, when there are incremental ways to improve the team that don't cost a lot, they'll do it. They're competitive. They just, they cannot, they just can't bring themselves to do the just absolute bottoming out you know, Astros thing. They, they, they can't, they've tried, they've thought about it. I think that when it comes to Billy Bean and David Forrester, just too, too competitive. So it's probably hurt them a little bit, but also that getting hot late. And that's one of the reasons I think that there is, is a sense of optimism this year around the A's and especially in the clubhouse uh, is the fact that they did play so well in September. They got a lot of energy from the young kids. The kids all played well. It does look like this young core has, uh, you know, they, they certainly have the ability to compete at the big league level. Uh, so uh, I, I don't think that I think they are not going to be terrible enough again this year. If they spent, if this is another sort of last place or close to last place finish, if they'd spent this four-year stretch just being abjectly awful, they really would be setting up for a nice run coming up shortly because they'd be stockpiling so many good good young players from the draft. But they can't do it. They just can't. Because of who the A's are, because of the front office's history, whenever they do anything. People look at them and think, okay, what is the strategy here? They're, clearly, they have something in mind. They're trying to find the next edge, whatever. It's a 
I guess it's a testament to their competence and their reputation, but who knows how true it is. But this offseason, the A's did make three significant additions to their bullpen, those being Yusmer Petit, Emilio Pagan, and Ryan Buchter. All three of those guys, not only were they pretty good last season, but they're all extreme flyball-oriented relievers. So if you had a hunch or if you know for sure, do you suspect that there was any sort of intentional pattern there? Or was this as simple as we needed some relievers and these are the guys who were available to us? I think there's a little bit to it, but I think more that these guys um, fit um, exact roles that the A's were looking for. Bookter, by the time they got him, they were really sort of up against it when they were looking for left-handed relievers. So um, he was very much a, what can we do creative to bring in a left-handed reliever, period. And obviously, Petit can pitch in any role, and they really needed a guy who could do that, you know, long relief, shortly pitch anywhere and, and without complaint, just a really, such a nice weapon to have. Pagan, you know, they, they they just love the numbers from last year. Frankly, a little bit under the radar with what he with what he did in Seattle. But yeah, I mean, I think that it might be a little bit of a coincidence the fact that they do have all the the fly ball sort of numbers. But uh, I think they are look, they're certainly looking at everything. So it might be a, a trend to kind of to keep an eye on. Have you gotten a chance to talk much to Stephen Piscotti? I'm, I'm wondering sort of what his mental state is these days. He's someone who, of course, looked like a really promising player, rookie, was signed to an extension by the Cardinals, ended up being traded to the A's and had something of a, a down year on the field last year while, of course, he was dealing with his mother's ALS. And so he was traded back to his home area. He'll be closer to her. That is probably a, a weight off his mind. On the other hand, she'll still be dealing with this condition, and that can't be easy. So is he, I guess, is he finding a way to focus on baseball, even as he is focusing on his mother? Yeah, he, there's absolutely no doubt about it. I, I think this was such a good move for him for, obviously, so many ways. I did a big story in the offseason about the Piscotti family and they were nice enough to allow me and a, one of our photographers, Carlos Avila Gonzalez, to, to go in and talk about, I mean, just lovely. The circumstances they're dealing with are heartbreaking. Um, Piscotti's mom, Gretchen, was diagnosed last May with ALS. And, and really, that's, you know, you, you look at it along with a couple little injuries last year, uh, just Piscotti kind of never got on track. And that he has said that that was really weighing on him. He's actually living at home when he's in the Bay Area, spent the off-season living, you know, living in his old bedroom. He will be there this year. He even, uh, I think his fiance has a place in the city, which he can go to uh, now and then. But I, I think he is mostly at home now. His mom's ALS has not responded to treatment the way that anyone had hoped. It's actually been pretty aggressive. So that's tough. And, and certainly that's weighing on him and the rest of the family. Uh, but the fact that he's here, he's able to help out. She's been able, she actually came out. They've got a modified RV. She and some other family members came to spring training. She went to some A's games. Steven's younger brother plays for St. Mary's. They were playing ASU. She went to those games. So all of it, I think, is a real positive for him that he can be around in his family's time we need. And, you know, he's he's looked basically fine this spring, you know, no, nothing major one way or another, which is probably about what you want, like a little bit of normality. Dustin Fowler, he didn't have, I wouldn't say that he had a 2017 that was in any way comparable to the uh, the difficulties that Piscotti and his family were going through, but Dustin Fowler faced his own adversity. Of course, he got badly injured in his major league debut, and then he was subsequently traded from the Yankees to the A's in the Sonny Gray move. Fowler, at this point, looks like he is probably going to get the most time at center field for the A's. Starting there on opening day, 
even. And what have you seen from him this spring in terms of how his mobility looks, how his emotional state is at this point? Because you figure if anyone is motivated to get off to a, a hot start and a hot, healthy start in this season, it's it's got to be Dustin Fowler. Yeah, he looks fantastic moving. He looks really good in the outfield, stolen a couple bases. He's, the speed looks looks there. He looks rusty offensively, which is to be expected. I still say he, he's got the inside edge for the starting center field job to open the season. But I think if he is still um, not swinging the bat probably the way he'd like, it, it's possible he starts in, in Nashville. Just you know, And that would probably be a brief time. He's the guy the A's want in that center field spot. So it's not the end of the world if he doesn't wind up on the opening day roster. I think that would just be strictly to get him. He's even been going over to minor league camp and getting a a lot of extra at-bats over there. He's got a lot of time to make up. But yes, that knee injury was so devastating. And the circumstances, so, you know, he never came up to bat you know, in his major league debut, really dramatic. And, and uh, he's so, I can't even express to you, like, how thrilled he is that he's just healthy and that he knows now that he can play again. He's, he is, you never see him without a smile on his face. So that's been great. And when he does kind of get back to where, you know, his, his regular sort of level of play is um, particularly offensively, I think uh, a fans are going to just be delighted with him because he's so he's happy to be in Oakland. He loves the fact he got the opportunity. And of course, most of all, he's happy he's healthy again. Are Ace fans bitter or upset about the deconstruction of the last winning A's teams? Obviously, there's the Donaldson trade, but aside from that, you can look at what the A's did and what they got back from the guys they dealt, and it looks kind of okay. And I'm looking at Matt Trueblood's Oakland A's essay in the BP Annual this year, and as he points out, Trading Addison Russell hasn't really hurt them a whole lot. In fact, Marcus Semien has basically been just as productive as Russell has since they traded him, and they got Semien back for Samarja, or you know, they seem to get more back for Ben Zobrist than they gave up to get Ben Zobrist, in that Sean Manaya has now developed into a, a very good starter. And, you know, there are other moves they made that they were able to get something back. So do people look back at those moves in those years and say they didn't have to do this or they didn't get enough? Or is it mostly that the Donaldson trade is just so glaring that everything else kind of gets lumped along with that? Well, there are two that I think that, that really give people pause. Donaldson, of course. And that certainly that was shocking because it, it was not – the A's have done very well. As you mentioned with the midseason trades, they've really gotten good return on all those midseason trades. Donaldson was in an off season. It didn't need to be done. You know, he wasn't even in arbitration yet. And, you know, certainly he wasn't an MVP level player yet, or there weren't any indications. We knew that he was a top-notch player, but it, it sort of seemed like it came out of nowhere, particularly because the A's had already made some moves that off season that made it look like they were going to try to keep that window open. You know, they'd signed Billy Butler at like, why do you give a guy like that, you know, three years and $30 million if you're not going to keep trying to contend? And then he's mm-hmm trade you know arguably your your best position player after that and and he was so young too but the Cespedes trade gets people and when you talk about return they essentially got nothing for Cespedes mm. you know for the for the future because they got Lester who was gone after that and they got Johnny Gomes who was gone after that so I think those two now you could look at that one and say they would have only had another year of Cespedes anyway under that contract he probably would have been traded mid-season the next year had they not been in contention in the next year. But the combination of those two really closed that window. Mm-hmm. And I think 
much more quickly than fans were ready for. All right. Well, we can wrap up, as always, by asking for a win total prediction for 2018. So where will the A's end up this year, do you think? Well, I'm going to be nice and boring and say 81 because I think that that would be a nice, uh, I think that if they get, get to the 500 mark, they'd be pretty happy with that. I think they could do better than that, but I think that's realistic given their uh, division and who they have to play, play so many times, mm-hmm. but they'd be happy with that. They might make things a little bit interesting in September. I think that they could they could maybe hang around for a little while, but I, I don't see them probably doing much more than that. I do not think they will finish in last place. <laughs> yeah. That alone will be an achievement. Things are sort of looking up on the horizon and that the, the farm system tends to rate better these days and While the Astros just look like they're going to be a juggernaut for a while, you could look at the Mariners or even the Angels and say that maybe they're coming to the end of some sort of window and the Rangers don't seem to be any better set up than the A's are, certainly. So you could envision within a year or two the A's really being in a position to contend, if not to beat the Astros, then at least for a wild card. So maybe the the worst is behind them. I think that's that's a really good way to put it. I think that they feel like that they can probably start contending next year, and they're really the sweet spot. That's why they keep saying the stadium for 2023. Um, they think that sweet spot is sort of the early 2020s, and they, you know, with some of the players they have coming, they have a lot of in the lower reaches of their system. They've got some really good Latin players, especially some Cubans, and they've done had some very nice drafts. So, uh, yeah, I think they feel like they are a team that's on the rise. All right. Well, the A's ballpark may be lousy, but at least they have great beat writers, including Susan, who you can read at the San Francisco Chronicle and on Twitter at Susan Slusser. Thank you very much, Susan. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Again, just a small monthly donation helps the podcast continue. Thanks to all of you who have pledged in recent days. Five such listeners are David Kim, Tom Hubel, Chris Lofgren, Scott McCracken, and James Lovejoy. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We have now passed 7,500 members, so it's always active in there at all hours of the day and night. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, and you can keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We'll be getting to those emails very soon. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. As always, I remind you, check out banishedtothepen.com. That's the site started by Effectively Wild listeners. They are publishing written previews of every team that we are previewing in podcast form, so you can go read about the Giants and the A's there. And Jeff and I will be back to talk to you very soon. This is so